As we get started in this passage, I want you to notice first that there was a distress that had risen among some of John's disciples. It was a dispute probably concerning the baptism ministry of both Jesus and John, but also there was a questioning regarding the Jews' purification practices. And we see this alluded to in chapter 2, if you'll remember, verse 6, speaking of the six water pots of stone. You might remember those were the containers that were filled with water that Jesus turned to wine. But the real rub centered in on John's disciples and their concern that somehow Jesus was in competition with him. Now, just let that sink in just for a minute. Imagine that. Their concern that Jesus was actually competing with John. That's amazing. Now, we're not completely sure how this dispute got started, but it could be that sometime during this discussion that maybe some cantankerous, unnamed Jewish person could have brought up the point that not only was John baptizing, but the disciples of Jesus were baptizing as well. And that just didn't settle too well with those leaders. Also, I want you to know that the potential for conflict here between John and Jesus may have been elevated by the fact that both John and Jesus were ministering in basically the same geographical location. And by the way, I know this can happen even today as church plants occur in basically the same geographical location. Sometimes uh, there can be a potential for competition, friction, and maybe even jealousy among some of the leaders in these churches. Sad, but true. But Jesus was baptizing in the Jordan River, you might remember, in Jericho. And John was just a short distance north from there in a place called Anon. So they were close together. And I can just hear their voices as the dispute uh, unfolded. And and my mind kind of, it's kind of weird, so it kind of works this way. But I can kind of hear them. Wait a second. What did you say? Did you say that Jesus is baptizing? Where? In Judea? This is John's territory. And this is John's baptism. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom have you borne witness? Behold, he is baptizing. And all are coming to him. Imagine that. This is one of those moments that I would have loved to have been there and witnessed it for myself. But all in all, I I really believe that John handled this situation very, very well. You might say even that this was one of John's shining moments, the time that he truly showcased his greatness. You see, I believe John responded with humility. John responded with humility. Instead of jealousy, John handled the situation with complete, humble faithfulness. A closer look at John's words in this passage reveals some wonderful aspects about humility that I want us to look at today because I really believe they will challenge all of us as messengers for God. Number one. Notice that humility always acknowledges the true source of personal achievement. 
Humility always acknowledges the true source of personal achievement. Verse 27, a man can receive nothing, John says, unless it has been given him from where? Heaven. John's initial response to the disputing disciples laid absolutely no claim to his own achievements. Do you see that? At a moment when John could have chimed in with some defensive remark about his own personal work and ministry, instead he answered the situation most humbly, faithfully, acknowledging from whom his abilities came. In other words, he was careful to give glory to God. Do you see that? Again, I can just imagine how John may have responded. Maybe he said something like this. Come on, guys. What's all this fuss about? My ministry is from God. I'm nothing more than what God has made me to be. You see, I believe that the real problem with John's disciples was not that the people had discontinued coming to hear him preach, but that more were actually going to hear Jesus. That's what bothered them. In fact, the people were flocking to hear Jesus. Notice the latter part of verse 23. It says, And they were coming and were being baptized. By whom? By John. They were being baptized by John. So his ministry had not ceased. And even so, there is still a crowd and there are still wonderful results going on in John's ministry. There was concern with the growing popularity of Jesus' ministry. They were jealous. You hear their unfounded concern and their exaggerated words when they said, all, all are coming to him. Now, was that true? Well, who was John baptizing? You see, they were saying, John, everybody's going over to this guy. Instead of getting overly concerned or losing his cool, John simply sought to exalt Christ above himself. Instead, he refused to promote his own personal achievement. I like this guy. Look at John's answer again in verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What John is teaching us is simply this. The effectiveness of of anyone's life and ministry is determined by whom? By God. And given as a gift to the one who would willingly serve him. So God, all of us, dear folks, God invites us into his work. And he rewards those who are diligent and work hard. And whatever the results of our efforts, we ought to acknowledge God's hand in them all. And we should reject the temptation to compete with another, or of being jealous of any other person of whom God may have chosen to be more effective. The truth is, are you listening? We are what we are because of God's design. He made us that way. We are talented. We are gifted. By whom? By God. He thought it out. He ordered it. And God has placed us together, all of us, in this church, in Grace Church, so that we can encourage each other and build up one another in the faith. 
We are the church, and God has purposely and unique equipped each one of us with spiritual gifts that benefit and strengthen not just ourselves, but the whole. You see this in another very familiar passage. You've heard it preached from this pulpit a number of times. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul picks up in this same thing. It seems that he's even quoting John's. In verse 7, it says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, if we look over to the chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul expands this thought further when we get down to verse 12. And it says, For as the body is one and has many members, But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. Then, skip down to verses 15 through 17 of the same chapter, chapter 12, Paul illustrates this truth. And I like this. He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? So just picture that. A body with one big old huge ear right here, planted right in the middle. With no sense of smell, no sight, no taste. And I can imagine, I bet it would probably hear pretty well, wouldn't you think? But without all the other parts of the body, it couldn't walk, it couldn't talk, and if it could, it would constantly bump into things because it couldn't see. The truth is the body functions best when all of its members are free to operate like they were designed to. And Paul makes the point and brings it, it all to this one truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, he says this, But now... God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. You see, he designed it that way. He made us that way. He put us together on purpose. You are at Grace Church on purpose because somebody needs your gifts. What Paul was saying is this. If you are a foot, stop trying to be a hand. If you're an ear, stop trying to be a mouth. I took offense to that. It's talking to me. One of the things that made John truly great was that he was committed to being exactly who God made him to be. And he was committed to doing exactly what God had called him to do. You see, John was the voice. He was the voice. He was the forerunner of Christ. He made the way for Christ. That was his job description. And Jesus was the object. He was the truth. You see, John was committed to being himself under the direction of God's leading and his design. His job was to completely fulfill the role in which God had called him to fulfill. Imagine being deep in the forest and stumbling upon a small group of animals. They're all seated in straight rows like a choir. And up front, there is a loud, boisterous rabbit 
holding a clipboard and a pen in his hand and he's barking out instructions. He's obviously in charge, or at least no one can interrupt him to object. Maybe he's just too loud. So you decide then to listen in for a few minutes and soon discover that the rabbit is giving the animals a list of qualities that make an animal truly outstanding. Now, who wouldn't want to be an outstanding animal? You hear him say, now, if you want to be a great animal, you must run fast and you must learn to hop. There's a duck in the crowd who... Loudly objects, by the way, there's a duck in every crowd, amen. And he says this, hey, what about swimming? What about flying? Swim, the rabbit laughs. Are you kidding me? Who needs to swim? In fact, who likes to swim? And flying, great animals keep their feet on the ground. Everybody knows that. So the duck, along with all the other animals, begin to practice running and hopping. But poor duck, he just cannot get it right. In fact, whenever he picks up speed just a little bit, his back end swings so fast that it turns him over and over and over. You can kind of see it in your mind's eye like like a bowling ball rolling. He tries flapping his wings, thinking, well, maybe that'll help me get this hopping thing down. But then... It's not a real hop, not like the rabbit does. It just doesn't seem to measure up. So eventually, discouraged, the duck waddles back to the pond. And he's gliding gracefully across the beautiful water. And you hear him say, I guess I'll never be a truly great animal. No doubt in this place today, we have a lot of ducks. Yes, we have some rabbits too. (laughs) We also have some sparrows, and I believe maybe an eagle or two. Maybe even a butterfly or two. But I want you to know, we will have a lot of trouble here at Grace Church if we all start trying to look like and perform like a rabbit. And by running fast with little hops. All of us are designed to do that, you know. But here's the point of the illustration. Here's what I want you to see. God purposefully chose not to make us like someone else. How many of you know that today? Say amen. In fact, to wish to be like someone else is to discredit the wisdom and sovereignty of God who formed and gifted you, who knit your parts together. So instead of trying to learn how to hop or swim or run, maybe we should just try being thankful. Thank God for the way he made you. You are an original. If you don't believe me, look at your thumbprints. It's it's the only ones like them. It's the only ones. Your physical appearance and your personality are what make you, you. You have been fashioned by divinely devised DNA. And when we realize this, we can turn to the one who made us and give thanks for who we are. And we can find contentment in the thing God has designed for us to do. But not only should we be thankful. May I suggest that we ought to be realistic as well. No one is intellectually and physically perfect, I 
course, some might think that. But perhaps God is trying to teach us that the inside of a man is really what matters most. How many of you know that today? Say amen. Yes. I believe God is more concerned with the qualities of our character than he is with our outward appearance. So if you can hop or run, you cannot take credit for that. But if all you can do is waddle, then waddle for the glory of God. If you can soar or run and hop and swim, then do it with everything you've got. God gave it to you. He designed you to do those things. Develop it, refine it, and use it for His glory. Well, I've gotten off a little bit, so let's get back. John chapter 3. We saw first, humility always acknowledges one's true source of personal achievement. Secondly, Notice that humility always assumes one's proper place. Humility always assumes one's proper place. Look at chapter 3, verse 28. It says, You yourselves bear me witness, John said, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, John is saying to his disciples, and here again, I, I get just a little weird because I can almost hear these words. He says, come on, guys, don't forget who I really am and who I'm not. You see, John refused to emphasize his own personal importance at this moment, assuming his proper place meant serving as second man. He is the Christ, not me. John continues in verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. In John's day in the Middle East, it was customary for the friend of the bridegroom, we call him the best man, it was customary for him to make all the arrangements for the wedding. He was the master of the ceremonies, and for a time, everyone listened to him, and everyone obeyed his instructions. And his final responsibility, which was primarily ritual, was to stand by the door of the bridal chamber where the marriage would be ultimately consummated. And he would make sure that no one went in to meet the bride except whom? The bridegroom. So he stood by the door until, at an appointed time, The bridegroom came. He then stepped aside. His duties were finished. Basically what John is saying this. He's saying this. It's as though he's right here in the room with us today. And he's saying, for a time, everyone has been listening to me. But remember, I've just been making preparations for the nation, the bride, to meet the bridegroom, the Messiah, And now that he is here, Jesus is here, it is time for me to step aside and let him do his work. This friend, this best man assumed his proper place and found his greatest joy in serving the groom during the wedding ceremony. Likewise, John makes it very clear that his role as the forerunner of Christ would bring him nothing more than pure joy, ultimate fulfilling joy. Second man. And so that leads me to the third and perhaps the most difficult aspect about humility. 
Number three, humility always seeks to promote the recognition of another. Humility always seeks to promote the recognition of of another. Look at verse 30. He, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease, John said. This literally means he must keep on increasing. And I must keep on what? Decreasing. When you look into the night sky on a clear night, you can see the stars that shine brightly in the darkness. I've done that many times to lay in the cool grass and just look up and look at the constellations. I don't know what they are, but I look at them. Then later, early the next morning, as the sun begins to rise, the stars naturally fade, giving way to the brightness of the sun. And this is exactly the way it was for John. He was decreasing, and Jesus was increasing. Oh, and by the way, this might have been a great opportunity for John to feel somewhat injured, forgotten, and maybe even discarded. To feel sorry for himself. After all, he's been replaced. John's disciples certainly did not like it one bit to see their leader overshadow either. It's as though they were saying, look, John, say something to make him stop. He's stealing the stage from you. This is your time. What's he doing here? But humility always seeks to promote and preserve the recognition of another. Humility refuses to preserve our own personal acknowledgments. It is interesting that the opposite of a humble Christian is one who actually loses sight of what he's supposed to do. John's disciples, whose job it was to introduce people to Jesus, instead of rejoicing in the work of the Messiah, he got upset that the people were actually following Jesus. They let pride get in the way. They got jealous, and they sought to preserve their own personal recognitions. The ministry of John and Jesus had had obviously overlapped During this time in history, both were baptizing people. And I believe John continued baptizing because God had given him this distinct work to do. And he would continue to do it until God called him to do something else. In fact, in a short while, his new calling would be manifested. He would be imprisoned by Herod and then ultimately martyred. So John humbly and faithfully continues on. Continues to remain loyal in his calling as the one who would proclaim Christ. And by the way, while others love the opportunity to talk about themselves, to exalt themselves and their own personal accomplishments, John finds this moment as an opportunity to talk about Jesus, to minimize himself and exalt Christ instead. Now, as we work our way down through this passage, and we've got to end up, time has gotten away from us. But boy, it's been a great service, hasn't it? I want us to see two things that John declares about Jesus, and I'll just say them and get off of them really quick. First of all, Jesus is the true eyewitness. He who comes from above is above all, John says. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Jesus, 
is the true eyewitness. John said basically being a witness, a good witness, but not the better witness. He says, I can tell you some things about God's truth and I can tell you about his glorious kingdom, but I've never been there and I've never seen God. That's why he's, he's the better. You need to listen to him. When you hear Jesus talking about the creation of the heavens and the earth, remember he was there. When Jesus talks about the flood in Noah's day, it's just a story. But he saw it happen. When Jesus talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the others, remember he had watched them and he could give account of every moment of their lives. When Jesus talked about the future and the building of the church, he had already seen the end from the beginning of the church age. He knows them all. He knows every church. And oh, when Jesus speaks about heaven and his father's mansion, just remember, he had just come from there. You see, Jesus is the incredible eyewitness. Jesus is an authority because he is the only true eyewitness. He was there and he saw it all. But secondly, John acknowledges the fact that Jesus is the eternal authority. He is the eternal authority. Verses 34 through 36. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John says, if you think my ministry has authority, allow me to introduce you to the master. Let me introduce you to the Savior. He speaks the words of God. Why? Because he is God. He's part of the divine Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's who he is. He is the eternal authority. He has come to save you. He gave his life for you. He died. He was buried. He rose again for you. That's what he did. I can't do any of those things. So let's not miss what John is saying here. He who believes in the Son, Jesus, has life. It is his work that saves, not John's. In fact, it's not the ministry of John or any other man or pastor that determines your destiny today. Only Jesus can do that. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Well, let's finish up. John concludes the passage with a fitting climax to this whole chapter 3. And boy, it's been a wonderful ride, hasn't it, over the past three weeks? And he says this, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Reminiscent of verse 18. You remember verse 18? He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. As John faded from the forefront, he offered the invitation to believe in the one whom he was giving witness to, Jesus. He said, listen to him, come to him. He was offering his invitation to trust Jesus by faith, to believe his words of truth. 
for everlasting life. Perhaps you have been trusting in all sorts of people, things, whatever, for your salvation. You've missed it. Don't miss Jesus today. John makes it very clear that our failure to believe will result in nothing more than the wrath of God and, oh, we don't want that. The career, the career of this courageous, humble witness, John, is simply coming to a close. He is decreasing. And by the way, he has absolutely no regrets. Let's pray. You pray with me. Our prayer should be like the old Maranatha song that says, Lord, make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant, make me a servant, make me a servant today. Lord, that's our prayer. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of John the Baptist. Thank you that he was willing to be second man to make the way for God, the Messiah, the only one that we trust for, for salvation. I pray for every person in this room today. I pray for the one who may be trusting in all the wrong things, looking to a man for his approval rather than looking to God for salvation. Lord, I pray for that person today that they would come to Christ today before they leave this room have your way in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for these words. They're your words. Help us to receive them as your words, to apply them to our hearts, and live them out for your glory. For it's in your name we ask these things and pray. Amen.